This morning our text is Luke 2, beginning at verse 21, and taking us through to verse 40. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 2. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said In the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would use this word to bless us, to teach us, O Lord, to empower us to do Your will, 
For, O Lord, without Your Spirit, without the work of Your Son, without Your call, O Father, we are completely unable. And we ask this morning, Lord, that You would make Your presence known to us, that You would encourage us by Your Word. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, you know what this week is, don't you? It's the week after Christmas. It's the week when you look at the tree and wonder, how long can you keep it up until you'll be forced to take it down? It's the week when you wonder just how much more relaxation you can get before things start up in earnest again. It's when children look at the panoply of gifts and toys that have been provided for them and they've waited all year for on Christmas and they look at you and with sincere hearts they say, Mom, Dad, I'm bored. It's when Mom and Dad look and they say, how could you possibly have broken that toy so quickly? It's the aftermath of the big day, isn't it? It's the anti-climax. It's life getting back to normal after all of the hustle and bustle to be ready for Christmas. Well, on one hand, we can be concerned about that and use that to put ourselves into a bad mood. But on another side, we can look at that aspect of real life and say that God is teaching us something through it. And our text this morning actually is making that point for us. Because you see, our text this morning is a bit of an anticlimax. I'm guessing that you don't give cards to people at this time of year and say, Happy Circumcision of Jesus time. May you be blessed upon the anniversary of the purification of Mary. No. You see, this is stuff that is not so important in our eyes as Christmas, as the birth of Jesus. But you see, it is in this real life that God works. And you see, it reminds us that the birth of our Lord and Savior, Christmas, is not the end. It is not an end in itself. It is the beginning of God's work in the midst of His people. And so we have here from our good friend, Dr. Luke, three stories in the aftermath of Christmas. There is a story of obedience. There is also a story of expectation. And then finally, there is a story of joy. The work of Joseph and Mary, the work of Simeon, and the work of Anna. And so we will see that Jesus was born for a purpose, not simply to make us feel good, but to fulfill all that God had spoken by the law and the prophets. So let's look then, beginning with the story of obedience with Joseph and Mary. It begins at verse 21, and it begins in an inauspicious way. It does not have all of the build-up and the excitement of Christmas. No angel pronounces it. No trumpets blare. No heavenly host comes down to sing. But at the end of eight days, Jesus is circumcised. 
Now, you have to understand here that this is something that had to be done according to the law. It was a law that was centuries old. A law that God had laid down from the time of Abraham. That if you were to be a part of God's covenant people, you must be circumcised. And so, even in our context of the perfect Christmas story, we see now here the mundane of everyday life and obligations treading in. You see, we tend to think of Christmas as solving all of our problems, but for Joseph and Mary, the day after Christmas brought difficulty. It brought bleeding. It brought pain with no epidural, no Tylenol. It brought crying. Besides what the hymn maker says, I can't help but think that Jesus had to tell his parents when he was hungry, so he had to cry out. It brought sleepless nights. It brought backaches and tiredness. And eight days later, they had to then travel to the temple, travel to Jerusalem for the circumcision of our Lord. This is a good lesson for us because, you see, we tend to live our lives on highs and lows, don't we? There are times when everything seems to be right with the world, when our spirituality is second nature. There are times the Christmas Eve candlelit service, Easter morning, a baptism of one of our children or our grandchildren, and all seems to be right. And then the real world enters in, doesn't it? And our emotions are not what we want them to be. And we begin then to wonder, is God distant? Are we obeying Him? Does He really love us? Do I really have a purpose? And you see, this text here reminds us that we find purpose and the work of God in the simple acts of obeying His commands. Joseph and Mary go to obey this very real command of God. And it was not something that you looked forward to. It was a painful rite. It was a bloody rite. As a matter of fact, this was so unlooked forward to that the man who is synonymous with the law, Moses, tried to avoid it by not circumcising his son. But Luke wants us to see what Jesus' life is to be. Do you notice this phrase that comes up over and over and over again in this passage? We see it in verse 22, according to the law of Moses. And again in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And again in verse 24, what is said in the law of the Lord. And again in verse 27, and He came in the Spirit into the temple to do according to the custom of the law. And again in verse 39, they did all according to to the law of the Lord. Over and over again, Luke yells in our ears, the law of God. This may strike us as strange. Because you see, isn't this the time of Christmas? Isn't this the time of Jesus' birth? Isn't this grace and not law? But what we see here is following the law of God is important. It's important to know that God has given us commands for our own good and that He is our Creator and we are to do what He has commanded. But even more than that, this is in the context of Jesus and His life. You see, Jesus had to follow the law. Does that strike you as odd? 
the one who was the author of the law having to be under it, the one who was the source of all grace and truth having to obey the commands written in the Bible, these very same commands that you have, the same words, the same commands. You see, this kind of obedience shows us our need. Mary has to go, the mother of God, and be purified to follow the law of Leviticus 12. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of the meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Think about what that says about our human estate. The next time you are tempted to think, well, God must really like me. I tithe. God must really like me. I go on mission trips. God must really like me. I witness and evangelize. You have to remember that a human just like you gave birth to God. And she had to be purified as a result of that action. She had to go into the temple and be purified according to the law of Moses. Not because Jesus was born in sin, for the angel tells us that otherwise, because Mary was a sinner who needed God's grace. There was no hope for Mary or for Joseph apart from the work of Jesus. They were the parents, after all, of Jesus. But they were still without hope except for Christ. They went for two purposes here. They went not only to have Mary purified, but they also went to have Jesus consecrated. We see that here in the end of verse 22. They brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord, as is written in the law. And this, is, of course, goes all the way back to the days of Moses, where the firstborn belonged to the Lord. And it would remind us of the redemption that God brought in the Exodus. And so from that time forward, the firstborn would always be consecrated, be set apart by God. Do you see what God does here? God takes the firstborn and He acts. He consecrates the firstborn by setting them apart. And then He invites the parents to follow after His action and to set them apart for God. You see, God is at work here, and we respond to God's work because of the grace that is given to us. This is often what we see in the sense of baptism. Baptism does not save a child. Baptism is the setting apart of a child, putting the mark of the covenant upon the child. But again, it is not something that begins with us. A child comes to the waters of baptism because He is do it because God has placed him in a covenant family. Because of the work of God, we then acknowledge it. And so it is even in the family of Jesus. Jesus' family needed purification. They needed to follow the law. And they also did so in the context of difficulty and hard times. I find that for myself, one of the easiest excuses that comes to my mind when I do not want to obey God's commands are, well, I just don't have the ability. I just don't have the means. If only I had more, then I could do more. 
If only God had given me more ability or more money or more friends, then I could do more. But we see here in this context that Jesus and his family were the definition of needy. They were poor. Because what happens is they they sacrifice, you see here in verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, according to the law, is what the law says. And this tells us that they were poor because the normal sacrifice was a lamb. And the law says that if you could not afford a lamb, then what you could do is walk right up to the front of the church and bring your sacrifice and say to everyone in front of them, I don't have any money. I'm too poor to bring a proper sacrifice. So I have a substitute provided for in the law. Could you imagine that? How would you feel if that's how we took the offering this morning? You see, Jesus' family had needs. They were not born in luxury. They did not have a life of ease. They worked hard. They followed the Lord. This is what we are called to do. Because you see, if you are like me, you will have difficulties not only in the past year, you will have difficulties in the year to come. There will be strains on your finances. There will be strains on your time. There will be strains on your patience. You will be tempted to say, well, I can just put off obeying the Lord a little bit. But you see, this story here tells us that we are a people of need who need to follow the Lord in obedience. Because you see, it's in the midst of this need that God reveals His provision for us. It was not just a ritual, bare and simple, that Joseph and Mary were performing. When they brought Jesus to be circumcised, they were declaring publicly for all that Jesus was a part of the covenant people of God. And we should be glad that they did this. For unless Jesus is a part of the people of God, then we cannot be a part of the people of God. For everything that we have comes from Christ. And so publicly they are declaring that Jesus is the one, that God loves Him, that God has drawn Him to Himself. And He will be the one who is drawing all God's people. It should not be lost on us either that in the midst of this circumcision there is pain and blood. Not atoning blood, but there is sacrifice. Can you get your arms around the concept that God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, bleeds, experiences pain, and does so to identify with His people? It puts in a different light the pain and difficulty that we have, doesn't it? For you see, you cannot look up at God like the rebels in the world do and say, God, you don't know my problems. You don't know what it's like to hurt. You don't know what it's like to experience difficulty and pain. Because you see, Luke tells us that he does. Jesus knows what pain is like. Jesus knows what it is like to bleed. Jesus identifies with his people. 
It's also a reminder to us that Jesus Christ obeyed, even from His earliest days, the commands of God. And this is important because, you see, Jesus did not just die a death of atonement for us. Jesus lived a life of perfection. He was the unspotted Lamb of God. And everywhere that we have disobeyed, Jesus has obeyed. This is the work that Jesus has done. He has obeyed on our behalf. And so as you think about your own obedience this past year, and as you perhaps are discouraged at the thought of obeying in the coming year, you have to remember that your relationship with God does not depend on you following the letter of the law. Jesus has already done that for you. Jesus has obeyed for you. Well, a second story then comes up as Jesus is brought into the temple to be consecrated and be set apart. It's a story of a man named Simeon. And as is often the case in the Bible, we know a good bit about who Simeon is, but perhaps not as much as we would like. We know that he lived in Jerusalem, perhaps even near the temple. We don't know for certain from the text if he was a priest. Many of us think that he is a priest because of his interaction with Mary in the rite of purification, but we're not told that. For all we know, he is just a simple man like you and me. But what we do know is he is a man who was righteous and devout. He was good to other people. He was righteous in his actions and he was devout toward God. He was committed to God and to God's people. And he began waiting on God. Waiting on God and holding on to the promise of God. You see, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. and He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He knew that God was going to bring redemption. He knew this from the prophets. He knew this from God's Word. But he had a special blessing. In an era in which few believed, he believed and God came to him and confirmed that promise by his Word to Simeon. You see, in many ways, Simeon is a lot like us. He lived in the midst of a world that was all a flutter with politics. People were not sitting down and rapidly reading their Bible hoping the Messiah would come. They were busy complaining about the Romans, complaining about their government and that horrible guy at the top of their government, Herod. And why were the taxes so hard? And why couldn't he get things to work? And why does he pick on us? And why can we not have? And what is going on? Much like today. And you see, in the midst of all of this, Simeon was holding on to the promise of God. And that promise became very real to him because God revealed to him that this would be fulfilled before you die. This would have filled Simeon with great hope and joy because you see, Simeon knew he was in need of consolation. Simeon knew he was in need of redemption and a Savior. Do you know that this morning? For you know you and I are in need of redemption. 
You and I are in need of consolation. We will not be saved by our complaining against our government. We will not be saved by our attempts to do right things. We will not be saved or have hope apart from the consolation of Israel. You see, Simeon was holding on to the promise when very few people did, and God had given him such grace that he looked forward each day with great anticipation to the coming of the Messiah. Can you imagine the sight? He would be near the temple, and he had been given the promise, but not in all of the detail that he would want. Just like we have a promise. Jesus is coming back, the Scripture tells us, but it doesn't tell us when. The day of the week, the month, or even the year. So, can you imagine Simeon in this similar state? He goes to the temple and he watches the parents. Is it this one? Oh, maybe surely it's him. No, it, certainly it's him. Well, maybe tomorrow. And he comes back the next day with eager anticipation. Maybe the Messiah will come today. I didn't feel so good this morning. Maybe now is the time. Day after day after day, with great anticipation, he would come longing to see Jesus. Is that the way that you face the Lord? Is your life a life of expectation? I venture to say that you are perhaps tempted, if I can put it this way, to get bored with Jesus. You know he's coming. You know he's going to do things. But there's lunch to be made. And there's traffic to be in. And there's games to watch. And there's medicine to take. And there's life to do. And so Jesus becomes something that we know is out there. But doesn't quite affect us every day to the extent of thrilling our hearts. Do you get up each morning and say, I wonder if this is the day that Jesus will come. I wonder if this is the day when God will reveal Himself to His people. You see, that's the kind of life that Simeon lived. And it wasn't just a week, and it wasn't just a month. It was a very long time. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, he would have this expectation. But then finally, Joseph and Mary come with their child. And now you can imagine the scene. Simeon is thrilled with delight. He jumps up. He runs over to them. And perhaps in my mind's eye and sanctified imagination, I think Mary is kind of caught by surprise. He's so excited, he swoops up and grabs the baby out of her hands, holds the child up, And he says, Lord, now I have seen your salvation. And he begins to speak of the glories of Jesus. And the shock and the alarm that were on Mary and Joseph's faces turn to wonderment. Not because they did not know who Jesus was, but because now they knew that the story was rolling out, as it were, that God was revealing the purpose of Jesus, that now even a complete stranger knew who this child was. And you see, Simeon was filled with delight because now he knew not only would he see God's salvation, but that God would complete his salvation. 
This is something else that we need to, to come to grips with. If we come to the point where we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to know Him by faith and we trust that we are saved, that is not the end. There is so much more. We must know that God is preparing a place for us, that God will complete all that He has begun. This is what happened for Simeon. And then his words go even beyond Mary and Joseph's expectations. For you have to remember, up until this point, Jesus is presented as salvation for all the people. That is, the people of Israel. Everything is happening in the temple of Israel, in the capital of Israel. And now Simeon holds up this child and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And he begins now to speak of the promise of Abraham. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Going even beyond what people had expected and hoped in the promise of Abraham. This is earth-shattering. For you see, anyone who was around, who was devout, who would have believed the promise, who would have been hoping, now realizes that God's goodness and grace goes beyond anything that even they imagined. They are marveling at the grace of God. Do we marvel at the grace of God in the aftermath of Christmas? Do we marvel that God can save anyone that He wants? Or does it creep into our being? Does it creep into our behavior as we think about testifying to who Jesus is? If we, as we think about witnessing to others, do we scan the audience and say, Oh, it's a waste of time to talk to her. Oh, no. No, no, no. Look at that guy. No, 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 no. Can't we find someone a bit more clean cut? Can't we find someone a bit more primed? Or do we look out and we say, by the grace of God, all peoples can hear the message of grace. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how you dress. The call of the Gospel is to you. You see, perhaps it is not a looking at other people's. Perhaps it is a looking in your own heart and knowing how you have fallen short, knowing how you have sinned. You think there's no way that I can ever be right with God. I can't go back and clean up my past. I can't repair all those relationships. I can't undo all those things I've done. But you see here, Simeon's song tells you there is hope for you. Because God's grace goes beyond even what you think. It will go. It is the work of a gracious God. But also beyond our expectations is not only the grace of God, but we have to understand that until Jesus returns, we will face opposition. You see, opposition is not something we like, is it? We would be happy if in the wake of Christmas, everyone just woke up one morning like Scrooge. Oh, I think I'll follow Jesus now. 
Oh, let me change all of the laws. Oh, let me help you. Oh. But that's not what happens Christmas morning, does it? Some of you that went out the day after Christmas with returns still found people cutting you off in traffic, didn't you? You still saw people using foul language in the stores, didn't you? You saw children complaining about multi-hundred dollar gifts, didn't you? You see, we don't live in a fairy tale world. We live in a real sin-scarred world that is touched by God's grace. And you see, when Jesus comes, His people are drawn to Him, but there is also opposition drawn to Him. There is no neutrality with Jesus. There is no Switzerland. He is either for the rising of His people or for the fall of those who refuse to believe. And the language that Simeon uses here is very vivid. The word rising here is the same word that is used for resurrection. He might as well have said, for all who believe in Jesus, there is a resurrection coming. And for all who do not, there is a crash. For you see, the fall here is the same vivid word that is used of the crash of the house that is built on sand. Without Jesus Christ, we build everything that we labor for on a foundation of sand. This morning, is Jesus a rising and a resurrection for you? Or are you just waiting for the house to crash? Are you busying yourself about the house, decorating and sprucing and cleaning, and not worrying about your foundation? You see, Jesus calls us today not to beautify our home, but to be drawn to Him. There is no neutrality with Jesus. There's a third and final story. After the story of obedience and a story of long expectation, there is a story of joy. That's the story of Anna. Imagine this woman, Anna. She's an older woman. We don't know exactly how old she is, but to put it in perspective, she is at least 84. It's possible that she's older. It's possible that that number of years 84 is the number of years she has been widowed. She could be as old as 100. But 84 is old enough, I think, at this point. For us to understand how this 84-year-old woman has been blessed by God. The good in her life is that she is a prophetess. She is a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she has received great blessing. The tribe of Asher is actually one of the lost tribes at this point. The ten tribes who have been lost in the captivity. But apparently at least some within those tribes had acknowledged and known and memorized their lineage. And so she has been blessed by God to know His Word and to be able to bless others by speaking it. And she is in very rare company. There are seven or eight women who are described as prophetesses in the Old Testament. So we know that she's blessed. But she also has 
some bad in her life. For Luke tells us that she's a widow. She has been a widow seven years after she was married. She was married and for seven years she enjoyed life with her husband. And then he was taken from her in an untimely way. And so she has now lived year upon year of sadness and sorrow. Some of you know that sadness of widowhood. You know what the ache and the pain is like. You know what it's like to long to be with your husband or your wife who has gone on. Now imagine that you had done this for 84 years or 60 some odd years. It would be enough to make you bitter. Wouldn't it? It'd be enough to make you a complainer. It would be enough to make you feel righteous about complaining. You know, I've had a hard life. Some of us feel righteous about complaining of other bad things that have come into our lives. Well, you know, I've never really been able to have a good job. So that's why I can't afford good things. God just hasn't given me blessings. You know, I've never really had good health. If God had only given me good health, I would be in better shape. But because He hasn't, this is a good opportunity to complain to everybody about my health. But you see, that's not how Anna approaches life. You see, this horrible thing has happened to her. And she's described by Luke as being devout. To put it in our terms, every time the church door is open, she's there. And she's there, not just for show, she's there praying. And she's there singing when there's song. And she's there listening when there's things to be taught. She loves to be with God's people. She loves to be in the presence of God. She can't imagine anything other than doing that. Do you see why her life is now filled with joy? Do you long to be with God's people? Do you long to hear God's Word? Do you long to be encouraged by others? If you don't, then maybe that's why there's not sufficient joy in your life. Because God works not only in the good, but He works in the midst of the bad here. And she sees Jesus come in, and she sees Simeon hold up the child, and she hears that this is the One who is the consolation of Israel. She's been waiting as well, year upon year, month upon month. And upon seeing Jesus, all of her life is put in perspective. And she begins then not to complain about her widowhood, not to complain about her bad back, not to be concerned about her future. She begins then to thank God. At that very hour, Luke says, as soon as she hears the good news of Jesus, she gives thanks to God. For you see, when we know who Jesus is, it wells up thankfulness in us. Ask yourself this question this morning. You got up to go to church. You got up to go to church the Sunday after Christmas. You're in pretty good company so far. When you woke up, did you thank God for Jesus? Or did you forget? You see, it's so easy to lose sight of who Jesus is and what He means. I'll tell you what I never forget. I never forget to make a cup of coffee in the morning. Because if I forget, I'm reminded 
I'm a little droopy. I'm at the stage where I'll start to get a headache. And I'm reminded of what I have to do. If I can be reminded each and every day to have coffee, can I be reminded each and every day to thank God for Jesus? For the very breath that I breathe, for the joy that I have, for the purpose that is in my life? You see, that's what comes to Anna in the midst of all of her difficulty and sorrow. Tomorrow when you get up, thank the Lord for Jesus. And you see, after you do that, the next thing which seems so hard, it's easy to say, thank you, Lord, for Jesus, isn't it? What's hard is to walk up to a stranger and say, do you know who Jesus is? If I commanded you to do this right now, some of you would be petrified. Oh, what would I say? How would I do it? Who would I pick? How would I speak? I don't know how to do this. You see how good God is? You start with the easy. Thank you, God, for Jesus. And when you do that, it can't stop there. You see, she thanks the Lord for Jesus, and then she begins to look around and says, these other people need to know about Jesus. They need to be thankful for Jesus. I need to tell them about Jesus. And so you can again imagine the scene of this woman who is in her mid-80s with a smile that is across her whole face, rushing from person to person saying, do you know who that baby is? Do you know why there's hope? Let me tell you about the promise of God. Let me tell you about what He said in Isaiah. Let me tell you about what He said in Jeremiah. Let me tell you about what Simeon just said. And I'm sure there were people around her that thought she was crazy. That she'd lived a year or two just too long. And they would shoo her away. And I'm sure there were others that said, Don't bother me. Get away from me. You're annoying me. But I'm certain also there were people that said, What do you mean? Who is this Jesus? What are you talking about? Tell me about that. For you see, that's how the Word of God works. It begins in us and brings thankfulness to us so that we cannot help but bring that Word out to others. This morning, in the aftermath of Christmas, in the humdrum of everyday life, in the cusp of the new year, Luke gives you a challenge. Be thankful for Jesus in your life. And don't let that thankfulness stop there. Let that thankfulness go on so that you are compelled to tell others about who Jesus is. It will be hard at first. But if you're obedient, and if you're expectant, waiting on God to work, He will bring you joy in the midst of it. A joy that passes all understanding. A joy of knowing that God has called together a people for Himself and that His people are saved by Jesus. This is the one who was born. This is the one who died. This is the one that we serve. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.